there or scroll there in your device. We're looking at chapter 17, and our message is titled, The King Revealed. In today's verses, we'll see Jesus elevated to his rightful place far above any any prophet or teacher or any earthly king. We see Jesus, the king of heaven and earth. Some of you are familiar with Matthew 17. You know this is the transfiguration. We're we're in the uh, sort of the the last part of Jesus' earthly life and ministry before his crucifixion and resurrection. John, in his gospel, writes about Jesus' divinity, that he is God. Mark writes of Jesus as servant, that he didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke speaks to Jesus' humanity and Matthew his royalty, that is that he is king. The transfiguration is a, it's a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry, likely near the end of his work in Galilee where so much of what he did and taught uh, centered just before he begins moving south again toward Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. In chapter 19, uh, in chapter 19, Jesus will um, leave the Galilee region and in chapter 21, the triumphal entry. So it's not that far uh, ahead in this particular gospel. Some of what Matthew records in this passage Uh, And and its similarity to Jesus' baptism when his public ministry began seems to affirm that these two events act as bookends to Jesus' public ministry um, uh, and work in a sense. You'll you'll remember that at Jesus' baptism, Jesus said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased to hear him. And we're going to see the father declare that same thing over Jesus here in Matthew 17. And so some look at that and see this is sort of the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry that took place there uh, in first century Israel. The cross is in view and Jesus increasingly is speaking of it to the disciples and he certainly is going to in these verses. Even as this, is, uh, this event is a revealing, an unveiling of Jesus as king, in our time together we'll be, we'll be looking to learn from that revelation because seeing Jesus should change us. It did the disciples, and I pray that it does for you and I as well this morning. Why don't we pray, and we'll look at the first couple of verses. Father, as we open your word, we're asking God that here in this place this morning, you'd speak to us, Lord. We're trusting that, God, no one's here by accident or mistake. Lord, you've drawn uh, your people here, Lord, and you, you have a word for each of us. So we're praying, God, that you'd give us ears to hear those things that you would say by your spirit to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll begin with our first point this morning, seeing. Verse 1, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Remember the words that Jesus had spoken to the 12 only a short while before this, back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
And now we understand what Jesus meant by those words. He was offering these a glimpse at his kingdom, as well and most importantly of himself, the king in his glory. This event, it stands out as, it's very different from what, uh, very different from what we've read in the Gospel of Matthew up until this point. And what I mean by that is that there's been miracles and there have been teachings, but nothing like this, at least not since Jesus' baptism. So what's happening? In some ways, it's as though the miracle up until this point has been Jesus containing what is now revealed here on the Mount of Transfiguration. First of all, what is transfigured? I know some of you Bible scholars here with me, you know exactly what it means. But, but what is all of that all about? In the original Greek in which Matthew's gospel was written, the word used to describe this incident, what, what transfigured, the, the word behind it is, is metamorpho, from which we get our transliterated English word, metamorphose, which comes from metamorphosis. Transliteration is just when there's a word in another language and we don't want to come up with our own, we just go ahead and use that. Baptism is another example of that, right? That's, it's not an English English word. It's a word that uh, comes from the Greek. Well, to metamorphose is to change from one thing to something completely different, like a, like a caterpillar to a butterfly, a tadpole to a frog, right? In that case, we might understand this to mean something lesser changing into that which it truly is, revealing its true self. The caterpillar contains within its DNA the, the reality of the butterfly that is not yet. Its time simply hasn't come. But once it enters the cocoon or the chrysalis, it begins to change, of course. And it'll shed its caterpillarness, if I can say it that way, and fully become the butterfly that it always was. We read, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. What we read is exactly what happened. Jesus' face began to glow, not just glow, but radiate, his clothes shining brilliantly. This was, this was truly a, an awesome scenario that's unfolding in front of some of the, the select disciples who were here to see this happen. Through the transfiguration, Jesus is giving a sneak peek of what's coming after the resurrection and what was before the incarnation. Jesus glorified, fully transfigured, metamorphosed into the risen Savior, God the Son, no longer veiled in frail humanity. This is a moment whereby his divinity is being revealed, that the shroud of his humanity is pulled back, that his glory might shine through. And we'll talk more about that in, in the next section of verses, but Verse 1, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There's all kinds of speculation about which mountain Jesus led these three up on, but the reality is scripture doesn't tell us explicitly which one it was, and uh, we just don't know. So it's um, something we can move on past. But Matthew notes that Peter, James, and John were selected to join Jesus for this, this special uh, unveiling. Why these three, we might ask? 
And it would seem that this happens at least two other times in the, uh, in the Gospels, where Jesus selects Peter, James, and John and pulls them aside for uh, sort of a special encounter. In Luke chapter 8, verse 51, when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, he again selected these three. Verse 51, when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl that Jesus would heal. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 34. This happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. So the disciples are here praying with Jesus. But then he says to those three, you come in to this more intimate place, this deeper place arena of what's happening right now. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, stay here and watch. Why these three were set apart. Lots of ideas about this, uh, why this might be. Was this an inner circle? Some people have looked at Peter, James, and John and said these are Jesus' best friends. And that's why they were set apart to experience special ministry with him. Um, was this, did this represent an inner circle, maybe? Was Jesus trying to keep them out of trouble? That's maybe more likely. Because if you read the Gospels, uh, some of these characters in particular, you go, okay, man, they, they needed, like, you know, I mean, some of you have children or grandchildren, and you know the ones where, you, yeah, why don't you come with me to the grocery store? Leroy, come on, I'm, I can't leave. You're going to burn the house down if I walk out the door and you're here. But additionally, apart from that, because, yes, they, you know, James and John were the sons of thunder, Right. When um, the one community didn't want to receive the witness of the disciples, they told Jesus, let's call down fire. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. And he called them sons of thunder. Peter, I mean, Peter, right? His name is just synonymous with um, putting his foot in his mouth. He was also a man of great faith, but needless to say, they were a handful. Um, Galatians chapter 2 verse 9 says, apart from those observations that these three were pillars in the church. And so not only for the other extra reasons, but um, it was important that there were eyewitnesses to what we're reading about in Matthew 17 this morning. Uh, witnesses to this glorious revealing of Jesus in his power and majesty. More than just one person. And these three, as had been the case at least two other times, were chosen. There on the mountain, these three were given the opportunity to see Jesus as he truly was and is. The question this morning for you and I is, are we seeing Jesus as he truly is today? We may need a fresh revelation of exactly who he is, the King of Kings, because in our day-to-day -day experience, our following of the Lord it's very easy to drift from that place of living near to the heart of our Savior. It's easy for our view of him to become obscured. And we need those times where we come away with Jesus, like Peter, James, and John, for a time of special intimacy with him. And I pray that you experience that to some degree this morning. Now, this brings us to verses 3 through 6 and our second point, listening 
listening. Verse 3, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Now, into this fascinating incident are introduced two special guests, Moses and Elijah. We have these two visitors from the Old Testament. How did the disciples know that this was Moses and Elijah, by the way? Was, did, I mean, did Moses have a big robe on and he looked like Charlton Heston and Elijah had, you know, a blue sash or something and a, a halo and they thought, oh, this just has to be these guys. Probably it's more likely that either Jesus introduced them, was using their names, or there was just some kind of a supernatural awareness, but probably it was more practical and they just were told this was Moses and Elijah. We read in Luke chapter 9, verse, uh, verse 30 through 31, exactly what it, what it was that they were talking about. Because that's kind of interesting. You read Matthew 17 and you think, well, gosh, here's Moses and Elijah, and they're hanging out with Jesus as he's transfigured. He's glowing and radiating in all of his glory. What are they doing together? Why are they there and what are they talking about? Luke tells us in verse 30 of chapter 9, And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? They spoke about the cross. And I think it's funny the language that Luke uses because most of us, would not describe our death as something that we're about to accomplish. We don't talk about it in those terms, but that was exactly how Jesus saw his death on the cross. It was a moment in time that he was, that he was living and purposing toward. It was the work that he came to do on our behalf, and so it was spoken of in those terms. Why is it that God chose to have these two appear at, at this same moment when Jesus was fully revealed, transfigured in this way. Well, there are definitely some good ideas out there and some that are fairly obvious. Moses, of course, represented the law. It was to him that it was given on Mount Sinai. Moses was and is synonymous with the law. Very often when you read in the Bible about the law, it's referred to as the law of Moses. Jesus' words we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. John writes in John chapter 1, verse 17, for the law came through Moses, but grace and truth come or came through Jesus Christ. There was so much in the law that pointed to and spoke of Jesus, and now here Moses stands symbolically representing the law before Jesus himself, the Messiah. Elijah, of course, represented the prophets, those who had come warning Israel of God's judgment, but also of his mercy, speaking clearly of the coming Messiah and the Savior himself. 
Jesus had said of the prophets in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law. I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The jot and the tittle, that's like our dotting of the I and crossing of the T. They were sort of um, little almost, uh, you, you didn't even notice them, um, indications in Hebrew grammar. But anyway, and yet in Hebrews chapter one, verse one, we read God who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us through his son. The law and the prophets summarized those passages that spoke definitively of Moses. But now the Messiah had come and both Moses and Elijah are here to testify to that uh, in their presence with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We read in verse 4, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, uh, God bless Peter. It's, it's as though he didn't know what to say, so he said anything. And actually, that's exactly what Mark and Luke tell us in their Gospels, which is kind of funny. Luke, or Mark rather, writes in chapter 9, verse 6, that, that Peter came up with this whole idea of, well, we should, we should turn this into a camping trip, and we'll make tabernacles for Moses, Elijah, and for Jesus. And Mark says in chapter 9, verse 6, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. I think if I was Peter and I got to heaven, I'd look at the other gospel writers and be like, did you have to say that? You know, Mark, I discipled you. You needed to include that. Was it really necessary? Luke says he didn't know what he was saying. He was just kind of in the moment. Sometimes, you know, silence is golden, kind of like in the movie theaters when they show that little slide before the movie starts. You know, silence your, your cell phones. And sometimes before the Lord, we, we do well to quiet ourselves. We'll talk more about that. But, but that's got a little bit to do with that experience of the Lord revealing himself to us. Sometimes we've got to slow down and we've got to quiet ourselves down if we're going to hear his voice and if we're going to see his face. And I think if we're in a place where we feel like it's been a while since we've seen the Lord or experienced his presence, we might ask ourselves, are, are, we, going, are we going full speed? Are we going full bore? When's the last time we slowed down? Are we, are we coming into our time with the Lord with the phone open and the laptop up? And is there all these other things and distractions going on? Sometimes at my, at my office out in Lake Forest, I'll just, I'll step away from my desk and I'll tell our secretary, I'll say, I'm going on a prayer walk. And we just happen, our church is real close to the, our community. We have this huge sports park. And so I'll just go and walk. And sometimes I'll take a prayer list with me. Sometimes I'll take a, a message outline. Sometimes I'll just, I'll take nothing. And I'll, I'll just go. And, um, and just listen to the Lord and quiet myself. Here we've, you know, we've got the beach all up and down the coast, of course. That's a great place to go. And just sit and listen. Peter knew that this was important, and he reacted religiously. Let's make three tabernacles. We need to build a shrine or something. This is just too good to leave alone. But sometimes that's exactly what we're supposed to do when God is speaking and working and revealing himself to us. 
nothing. Just listen, receive, and worship. This was a moment meant to communicate profound truth. It was not to be a monument. Peter misunderstood. People still misunderstand today. The irony is that even though Jesus told Peter, well, he really didn't have to tell him not to build uh, tabernacles because God the Father interrupted, spoke over Peter and said, this is my beloved son. Start listening to him, Peter. My, you know, my translation even though Jesus said that and there were no tabernacles built, today you can go to Israel, can't you? And you can find the area where they believe this took place and you better believe there's tabernacles there. There's the church of the transfiguration, which I think is so funny. But anyway, verse five, should we build, build a monument? No. Sometimes, again, the Lord's just looking for that moment between you and he. Doesn't mean you can't jot something down. You should. You should journal down what he's showing you. But listen. Don't, don't look to be busy in that moment. Sometimes we can be uncomfortable with that silence, but it's in those places that, that God reveals himself, and he wants to do that. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. This bright cloud is certainly the Shekinah glory that we find in the Old Testament, the manifest glory, the, the outshining of the presence of God that, that we, we see there in, uh, in the law. Exodus chapter 24, verse 16, actually, we read there that the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. This was when God was uh, committing to Moses the law. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. It's reminiscent of John's vision of Jesus recorded in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. There, uh, John writes that Jesus, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So while Peter is making plans for a monument, God interrupts while he was still speaking. Has the Lord done that with you before? He has with me. It's kind of embarrassing. When, God, when, you, when you've got a, a good idea, you know, Lord, why aren't you listening? You should be writing this down, God, because, I mean, this is good stuff. This is gold. And the Lord just kind of like steps over you and, and says, no, actually, that's not what we're going to be doing. Not a good idea to fight with him when that's happening. But anyway, it's as though God is saying to Peter, or at least for his benefit among others, that Jesus is not among peers for all to have, you know, equal memorials erected in that moment. No, Jesus is the main attraction here. Moses and Elijah are conversing with the one they wrote and spoke of and themselves had anticipated. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And of course, momentarily, the other two will be gone anyway. Jesus is the focus. Hear him. I struggle with how so many movements in the church uh, have come to believe that we should listen to, uh, revere, or otherwise appeal to anyone other than Jesus Christ. 
The New Testament is so abundantly clear about this issue. Jesus is the one with whom we have to do. There's literally no need for you and I to communicate with anyone else in the heavenly realm. Paul wrote to Timothy, we read in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now we come to verses 7 through 9, learning. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. The scene was terrifying. I mean, it had to be, right? You, you're just for a second, okay, it's Sunday morning, you know, we've had a little bit of coffee, hopefully, probably, and maybe you're already thinking about lunch, I don't know, maybe about what you did yesterday, something that's waiting for you tomorrow, but we'll step back into Matthew 17 for a moment if your mind has been drifting. This is the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is glowing, Elijah and Moses are standing before them, the disciples are terrified. Peter's the only one who's you know, crazy enough to suggest they should build tents or something, but they're down on their faces before him. Jesus has to physically rouse them and say, it's okay, get up. It's not like they you know, passed out and they were asleep or something. They're scared to get up. And not scared like, you know, some churches, uh, some religious understanding of the fear of the Lord and how we're supposed to respond and react to God gives us the idea that we're literally to be afraid of him. But, but we know the Bible's explaining to us of, of fearing God, what it means is, is a reverential awe. It's, it's just kind of being blown away by, by the greatness of who he is. I mean, can you imagine being there? All this is happening. Jesus glowing in front of you it would be, you'd be on your face too, right? I think we would. We'd be worshiping. The disciples heard it. They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid, awestruck and terrified. How do we respond when we hear the word of God, when we're in his presence? Obviously, the experience is different. Most of us, our personal devotional time does not look like what we've described and read from Matthew 17. If it is, I'd love to hear about it, but um, most of us don't have this kind of thing going on. But shouldn't we approach the presence of the Lord with a sense of awe, with a sense of wonder, with an anticipation of wanting to see Jesus, of wanting to hear the voice of God. And I would just challenge you that you're not going to have that experience if you're not in his presence, if you're not committed to opening his word and giving him that platform by which he can speak to you. I think, I think you know, obviously coming in and being in, in corporate worship like this is great. And one of the benefits of it is if you've kind of gone sideways a little bit during the week, at least you know you're going to show up on Sunday morning and Pastor Chris is going to give a good word and, and you're going to be fed and, and kind of like when you take your car to get an alignment, right? You get realigned and now I know my, my life is going to be going in the right direction. But, but Sundays in a lot of ways, they are, they should be kind of the icing on the cake in terms of worship and, and time in, in, in the word and before the Lord. We need to be students of the word, right? 
we need to be men and women who, who at some point during the course of the day, personally, I like the beginning because I haven't made as many mistakes by then. I get up before anybody else is awake, and I spend time there waiting on the Lord and, and, and reading his word. And he speaks to me, and he helps me, prepares me for the day. When we have built into our lives that habit, there's a greater likelihood that we're going to hear from him, that we're going to have that experience of him being revealed to us, of receiving from him. And as we go into his presence, I think, I think one of the things to remember is to go with an attitude of worship, to go with an attitude of remembering his greatness and his power and his might. We're not terribly animated in our worship, but obviously um, some communities of faith are more so, and they might be kneeling or, or you know, hands raised and standing and even more like that. But to, to pause and quiet ourselves before the Lord and remember who he is. Jesus' example, the model prayer that he gave us, the Lord's Prayer, it begins with worship. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes in my time with the Lord, I walk through that prayer as an outline for my time with God. And that beginning, it reminds me who I'm talking to because that really reframes the entire conversation, doesn't it? Man, you're the God of the universe. You're holy. You're worthy of my praise and my worship. I want to hear from you, Lord. I want to sit here with Bible open, ready to receive what you have for me. And I'm not worthy to receive it, but thank you that you want to give it. Jesus, Jesus had to reach down and shake these guys and say, it's okay, you can get up. Imagine if our devotional time ended that way on a more, you know, Monday morning, the Lord having to say, you have to go to work, get up, you know, or your, your spouse or something. Anyway, what did they see when they got up off the ground? And when they had lifted up their eyes, verse 8, they saw no one but Jesus only. What was important, the one that mattered, was King Jesus. It was he that the Father had instructed the disciples to listen to. Are we, are you and I, are we listening to him? Because as I spoke to earlier, sometimes in that time with him, we can be so preoccupied with our agenda that there's little room for the Lord to speak. Have you found that to be the case sometimes? I've been guilty of that, where I do have my list in hand. And, and really, I come to the Lord, and it's, you know, Lord, this would just be so much simpler if you would just take this list and sign on the, on the bottom. I put a place there for you to put your name and just do it all, and we can save a whole lot of time here. But, but he doesn't work that way, does he? Maybe he does in your life. He doesn't in mine. No, he doesn't in yours either. <laughs> It's, it's not my will, but fine, be done. It's waiting on him. It's, it's listening to his voice. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus asked the three to remain silent is because they didn't understand everything yet. They'd probably run out and proclaim him as Messiah, pushing the political solution that, that he wasn't ready yet to accomplish. That, that would be fulfilled in, in, in the millennium, way out in the future, stuff at the end of the book. 
No, Jesus had tried to tell them about the cross and the resurrection several times, but they just weren't getting it. They'd have to walk through that and experience it in order to fully understand, and then they would have the full gospel to share with others. They didn't understand that Jesus had to die, and without the cross, there would be no crown of glory. The king would first have to suffer and be crucified and buried before he could be raised in the resurrection glory of which they'd also just received a sneak preview. Now, because verses 22 and 23 later in this chapter, after the incident of the transfiguration, apply, we're going to read those two and, and sort of insert them here after verse 9. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. This is, of course, one of those places I just referred to where the disciples are told about the cross and the resurrection, but they didn't understand. The cross, it was still an enigma to the disciples. This idea of a suffering Savior, it was lost on them. It just didn't make sense. Jesus' followers, again, they were anticipating a turn in his ministry, a political shift, at which time they would become militant overthrowing the Romans and reestablishing an independent Jewish state. But that wasn't Jesus' plan. First, Jesus had to come as the Lamb of God, that he might be slain for the sins of the world. He is, of course, coming again as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Then he will reign and he'll rule in righteousness. But that's yet future still. This was too early, and the disciples would need to, again, walk with him through the cross and the empty tomb, his glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father at Pentecost to fully comprehend all of this, to have a message to take and to share. For now, it was theirs to simply drink this in, but to remain silent about it. It's a bit like a few chapters earlier in Matthew when Peter answers Jesus' question. Remember, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they all came up with different answers. And then Jesus uh, positioned it directly to Peter. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But Jesus instructed he and the other disciples to tell no one. You've read that in the Gospels before, right? Where earlier on somebody would say, you're the Messiah or this or that, and Jesus would tell them not to tell anybody. And we kind of go, why? That just seems strange. Well, for them to rush out and excitedly tell everyone that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God the Son, they'd misunderstand what that meant and, and what the real priority was. I believe it's why we see the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday where Jesus does allow himself to be worshipped publicly and the crowds cry out, Hosanna, save now. It's only a week out from the cross. Jesus made sure that that event was right up against the fulfillment of why he'd come. The two needed to be closely linked. The Messiah had come to die that we might live. In time, the disciples would understand this, but not yet. Now, as we finish this morning's study, we'll look at verses 10 through 13, our final point, clarifying. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They are confused at this point, Peter, James, and John. Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. 
and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man also was about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Okay, Jesus, clearly you are the Messiah. And we just saw Elijah with you, not to mention Moses. This is a pretty incredible encounter, and you're telling us we're not supposed to say anything. So the disciples, or Peter, James, and John, say to Jesus effectively, not literally, but well, yes, they did. Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why do the scriptures say, why did the prophets promise, why were we supposed to be looking for this moment and this very incident if we're not supposed to say anything? Jesus, this doesn't make sense. This is weird. What's going on here? You've got to explain this to us. What's the point of all of this if the prophet said to anticipate Elijah before the, resur- the restoration of Israel by the Messiah if we're not supposed to say anything? Well, the passage that's being referred to is Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. We read there, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. We've got the Messiah. We've got Elijah. What are we missing here is what they're thinking to themselves. You can understand their confusion. Verse 11, Jesus said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man also is about to suffer at their hands. Jesus is explaining that in a very real sense, Elijah had already come. And the disciples knew that he was referring to John the Baptist, as Matthew notes in verse 13. Now, remember what the angel told Zacharias at John the Baptist's birth? It's found in Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Remember Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, they were really old. They hadn't had any kids. Zacharias was in the priesthood. His lot was drawn and he was serving in the temple in Jerusalem. And he was was there offering incense. And then the angel appears to him and says, you're going to have a son. Pretty powerful. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children." and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, quoting from Malachi. John came in the same spirit, power, and ministry of Elijah, which is what Malachi had spoken of and prophesied. At the same time, he'd also just come literally appearing with Jesus. So this passage has been fulfilled in both senses. John bore this mantle of Elijah, and here uh, Elijah has just stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. But we shouldn't miss what Jesus also says in relationship to John, who by this point had been beheaded by Herod. Jesus said, likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Even as John suffered and died, so too will the Messiah, and is even about to. It's coming soon. 
This was a powerful, even radical moment in the life and ministry of Jesus that he chose to share with Peter and James and John. And in some ways, he's continuing to share it with you and I, this moment of revelation where he invites us in to deeper and closer intimacy. He'd revealed himself as the king, the glorious Messiah. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. I wonder this morning if the Lord wouldn't want you and I to ask ourselves, are we listening? Are we in a place where we're receiving from the Lord? When's the last time that we could say, I know God spoke to me through his word in particular? Are we receiving what God is wanting to reveal to us about Jesus? Or are we busy looking to build monuments to lesser voices like Peter? Sometimes we can fall prey to the same error of Martha, where Mary found herself sitting at the feet of Jesus, receiving, and Jesus said she's chosen the better part. Martha was frustrated by it. She was so busy serving the Lord. Jesus says, you need to sit and listen. Serving is good, don't get me wrong. Don't resign from where you're serving, all right? (laughs) Your ministry leaders need you there. But what needs to inform our serving is first sitting and listening and experiencing a revelation of Jesus. Jesus is the one that we're to be taken with, focused on, and serving. How we need to take care that we're listening to him his voice in our lives. The king has been revealed and he's speaking. Are we listening? We'll close with a story I came across that helps illustrate the importance of listening. Before refrigerators, people used ice houses to preserve their food. Ice houses had thick walls, no windows, and tightly fitted doors. Some of you uh, maybe grew up uh, with your kids watching a Little House on the Prairie. We still watch it with our kids. And they had an ice house in Walnut Grove, right? And it was built into the side of a hill and actually went down into the ground. So it, it, and it had the thick walls and everything, and that's where they would keep ice that would last. In winter, when streams and lakes were frozen, large blocks of ice were cut, hauled to the ice houses, and covered with sawdust. Often the ice would last well into the summer. One man lost a valuable watch while working in an ice house. He searched diligently for it, carefully raking through the sawdust, but didn't find it. His fellow workers also looked, but their efforts too proved futile. A small boy who heard about the fruitless search slipped into the ice house during the noon hour and emerged with the watch. Amazed, the man asked him how he found it. I closed the door, the boy replied, lay down in the sawdust, and kept very still. Soon, I heard the watch ticking. Very often to hear Jesus, what he's saying to you and I, you got to be still. You got to quiet yourself down. Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. He wants to reveal himself to you in a special way today. As Gabby comes up and um, helps us to close our time together with a song of worship, we want to 
prepare our hearts for communion in a moment. When she begins to play, you can come forward and take one of the cups that are here in the communion trays. Even as Jesus spoke of his death with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, in his revealing of himself to you and I, we know him there in that place through the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we have before us these elements that represent the bread and the wine. And they're an opportunity to remember Jesus. They're, they're physical and they remind us that Jesus literally came. We are engaged in our senses in taking communion. And we recognize that Jesus became the bread of life for us. And his blood was shed that our sins might be covered. And so we remember that life through his death. And we enter into that experience that he's given us where he's revealing himself there at the communion table. Would you stand with me and we'll pray and we'll worship the Lord and you can receive communion. Father, we, we ask that you would bless the bread and the, the juice, Lord. And Jesus, we thank you for this reminder that you've given us, this place of intimacy that 